you know, I was a small kid. I didn't hit my growth spurt for a while until I, you know, until I got to high school. Um, I am colorblind. So literally like in art class, I would be like, Hey, this is blue. They're like, no, this is green. And so they're like, no, you're stupid. And I'm like, well, this is weird. I, I don't see this. And no one ever gave me that benefit. Um, I had a lot of symptoms of ADD, ADHD. So it was very easy to say, Oh yeah, he's just dumb. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the I'm Made For More podcast. It's your host, Ennis here, and today's guest is a special one. He's a serial entrepreneur, a sought-after keynote speaker, and the CEO of Kingston Lane. It's the one and only Sharon Trivatsa. In this interview, Sharon shares his inspiring journey from being bullied in India to moving to the States and hitting rock bottom by having to eat from dumpsters to survive, and at one point having to fight off a raccoon in a dumpster for some Pop-Tarts, to then scaling a business up to $3.4 billion. Also, be sure to stick around till the end because Sharon gives us insight into the mindset and habits of the successful. Now, without further ado, Enjoy this powerful interview with none other than Sharon Trivatsa. So Sharon, the first question I'd like to ask is, uh, when you were 23 uh, years old, which is my age, did you ever imagine being in the position you are today and achieve the success you've achieved? Not at all, because uh, when, I was, when I was 23, I remember vividly that all I wanted was to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I knew that there was a lot more, and I just didn't know what it was. And that's a really big lesson for folks. You know, all of us believe that, Hey, I want to, uh, you know, I want, I want to, I want to build a billion dollar business or I want to write a best selling book or I want to, uh, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to have a jet. I want to have 17 Lambos. I want to like have, you know, have this, this house in Beverly Hills where I have all eight, you know, these books and I'm showcasing cards. Like there's random things that people think they want when they're 23 and I'll tell you that there's so much life ahead of you. And the funny part is, though, I feel the same way now. We're recording this when, when I just turned 40, and I feel like I still have a lifetime of opportunities ahead of me. But the one thing I will tell you is this. You don't have to figure out your next 20 years. You don't have to figure out who you want to be. But I'm a big fan of figuring out, like, the next big bone. Like, what's the big bone you want to gnaw on? Like, if I can give you one bone, not 20, like, if I can give you one bone to chew on for three to five years where you can create some mastery in that, where you can go in-depth in that, when you can create some nuances around it, like, what is that one bone that you were willing to, to chew on that you know that when you spend one, three, five years doing it, you get really good at it. Like, you naturally, because of time invested, get at it. And so I don't, you know, like, for the CEOs I mentor and I talk to their children and they're coming out of school, my only thing is, hey, you don't have to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life. If you had to choose like something that you don't mind spending three to five years on that you can get really good at, what is that? And if you don't know that, like we are in a mad search for that because that allows you this initial depth of actually driving stuff forward. And once you get the depth into one thing, it is very easy to get the depth into the other thing. And that's the big key. So for example, I spent five years teaching tennis. Now that sounds like, you know, it sounds like, oh, he's just a tennis pro. Like I spent five years teaching tennis with some of the best tennis teaching pros in the world. 
I was a student for five years, right? Like I was, and I play pro tennis, so I can, I understand that, but no one ever taught me how to teach. So I committed myself that I said, I'm going to spend five years learning how to do this. And as I tell you this, like, I believe that I got so good at so many things. One, how to handle, how to speak in front of big groups, how to actually uh, take a complex idea, explain it in a simple way. So now when I'm in a new industry, I can be like, oh, what are the three complex ideas I need to explain in a simple way? How do I actually speak? I can completely start to transfer that. So once the problem is everybody is shallow and everything. People go from, uh, you know, job in 12 months to another job in 12 months to another job in 12 months. That's okay. But at some point you need some kind of depth. Otherwise there's no transferability in depth. Do you really have to enjoy what you're doing to, to go in depth? Or is it, like you said, you just commit to something for five years and then you just do it for five years and you kind of master that skill? Yeah. So, I mean, there at least has to be a sense of, uh, you know, uh, interest in it. Otherwise you just, you feel tired and resentful and becomes a job and it becomes a paycheck and you start looking around and that's, then you want to break and you don't want to wake up. And that's, that's the so commitment. Yes. I'd say early on, the commitment is important saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm committed to doing this. I'm not looking for something new in the next, at least for three years. So I'm committed. So that commitment will drive more courage and they'll drive more interest and you'll look more, look around more, give you more focus. I don't think you need to love, love it. It'd be nice if that happened, but I don't think this is something where if you're not enjoying it, it's going to be very hard to commit to something that you, it's like being in a bad relationship. Like you just can't, you can't commit to it if you're not, if your heart's not in it. So I'm on a mad dash to figuring out for a lot of people, Hey, what's that? If it takes you one, three, five years to figure out that five years, that's cool because otherwise you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be committed because you just don't enjoy it. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, Sharon, let's get right into your story. Uh, take us back. I know you're a native of India. What part of India did you grow up in? Yeah, I was born, uh, I was born in the capital of India, which is New Delhi. And then I grew up in a, in a fairly large town, 14 million people called Chennai on, in the south of India. So um, my parents, I was the only child. My parents couldn't afford having more children. And uh, my father was a professor of English at a local university, and my mom was a nutritionist. And uh, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment in the heart of the city. And you know, it was very—it was a very mediocre life. But I had amazing parents. Like my parents cared; they did whatever it took to make sure that you know uh, that that I was taken care of. And I, up until this day, you know, I, I without them, I would not have what I have. Yeah, and obviously now you can repay them, which is great. Um, and where, where, what were you like as a kid, as a teenager? Were you a good student? Were you a class clown? What was it? I, you know, I wasn't talented enough to be class clown. I was one of those kids that, you know, in India, they don't, there's not a lot of respect for uh, learning disabilities and things like that. And I don't really know what I have but or had, but I, I had – you know, I was a small kid. I didn't hit my growth spurt for a while until I, you know, until I got to high school. Um, I am colorblind. So literally like in art class, I would be like, Hey, this is blue. They're like, no, this is green. And so they're like, no, you're stupid. And I'm like, well, this is weird. I, I don't see this. And no one ever gave me that benefit. Um, I had a lot of symptoms of ADD, ADHD. So it was very easy to say, Oh yeah, he's just dumb and mm -hmm. he can't get this stuff. So, and I clearly was dyslexic in some way. So I would, I could barely write numbers, right? So I couldn't do art. I couldn't do math. I couldn't do science. Like I couldn't memorize stuff. And 
to boot of all of that, it was a, I was also tone deaf. So I couldn't like play an instrument. I hadn't hit my growth spurt. So in all areas, most kids have something going for them. I had almost nothing going for me. So it was, it was pretty rough growing up. And, but I couldn't really tell my parents that I got, I got bullied a lot in school and it's not very common to get bullied in, uh, in India. That's not a very common thing from a cultural perspective, but if you're bad at so many things, you're just like the target. And, and so I remember this, which is, uh, um, very clearly walking from one classroom to another classroom, which is probably just a hundred feet away. I would run around halfway around campus because the lockers were in between. And I knew that if I walked by, I would get bullied and beaten in the locker. So I would literally run halfway around campus to go to the other classroom, which was a hundred feet away, just so I wouldn't get bullied in the lockers. I think my parents knew that something was up, but they didn't know what it was. And, um, and you know, it's, it's, Looking back, that was a, that was a tough time. Wow. What, what was your mindset at the time? Were you thinking like, man, I can't wait to get out of here? Were you thinking, uh, yeah, what was your mindset at the time? I was just looking, uh, I was looking for two things. Number one, I was looking for a friend. Most of the time I, I remember that I was like, man, if I just had one friend or two friends, I'd just kind of like hang in a group where I wouldn't get uh, ridiculed, beaten, pushed around, et cetera. Because I think strength comes in numbers. And maybe if you have a friend, people will be like, hey, don't mess with Sharon, right? Like that, that, at least that would be, someone would take me under their wing and nobody really did for whatever reason. And maybe that's how it was. And the second, I was just hoping that something would click, like something would click for me. Some, I would be good at something. I would figure out my, I'd figure out what I was good at, figure out something. And that just took a while. And, uh, and I, I wouldn't say I ever figured it out, but I think my parents figured it out. My parents asked me, uh, I remember this, it was my 10th birthday, I think. I think 10th or 11th birthday it was my 10th birthday. My father and I were sitting on a park bench and my dad's like, Hey, I'm, I'm 10 years old. This is crazy. Like you have to put yourself in the situation. I, I remember this day vividly. And he's like, Hey, you know, um, my, my, your mom and I have been thinking, and we want to make sure you get a better life. Uh, have you ever thought about, you know, uh, looking at uh, going to a different country to go to college? I was like, now I have feelings of abandonment. Now even my parents don't want to have me around. I'm like, what is going on? And, but my dad, my dad coming from my dad, he'd not even been outside the country. So this was pretty powerful for him to come up with something like this. And so we talked about it and he said, Hey, but you're going to need a skill. You're going to need this, this ticket, this passport, this, this capability, because no one's just going to let you walk into wherever everybody wants something for them. What are you bringing to the table? And I was like, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, and so he, we literally, and it's looked in front, there were two public tennis courts lessons were going on. My dad is like, Hey, you know, have you, do you think maybe it's an individual sport? You think you want to try that? Maybe you can cut, cut it in tennis. And if you did, you have five years to learn like five, six years, you're 10. If you get good at it, like this could be your ticket to go anywhere. And I was like, sure, I'll, I'll try it. Like now someone was giving me access to training, was giving me lessons, giving me focus. And so that was the day that tennis became like a primary for me and everything else became secondary. Like literally my parents had given me the permission to have my academics and my school and all of that be secondary. And that became the, the, the first lesson in focus. Huh, got it. What you can actually say, okay, you know what? I'm focused on this. This is all I care about. And not just you and me, right? It's the, there was a fat focus of the family. Like the, there was a family accountability around this saying, as a family, we can't fail. We have to support our son in achieving this new skill, this new capability. And so 
it became really easy to say, hey, who's going to take me? Who's going to drop me off at practice? My dad's like, I'll drop you off, but you got to take the three buses back or whatever, right? And it was very common to take three buses back. I remember like I would get changed for a bus and I would literally, and by the way, if, 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 if someone's listening has never Googled like bus India, you should. There's no, <laughs> it's not like a air conditioned bus. You're hanging off the, you're hanging off the railings and it's crazy. With 50 people in, in there. Oh yeah. yeah oh yeah. yeah. I mean, it's accessible for, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, accessible for coronavirus, right? Like it's like, yeah. you, where did coronavirus start? It's like buses in India, uh, right. you know, but it's, 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 it's wild because I remember taking like three buses to get home on a daily basis. And while most kids were playing right outside their street, riding their bikes, I was standing as a 11 year old in random bus stops taking buses and, and I'm not saying that's good or bad I'm just saying it was a I did it with a smile on my face because as a family we agreed that that was going to be my focus and um while you're sitting on the park bench have you ever touched the tennis racket before or not I don't even know the rule I know nothing I had no prior skill never played tennis nothing but I knew that I had like hand-eye coordination like I could catch a ball like I was I could do that I was not terrible yeah I didn't I'd never played like literally I was they, we signed me up for beginner group lessons. Like I literally had, I had never touched a racket before. Man. And, and do you remember your first day of training? What was that like? Um, I remember a kind of, I, I mean, I think I was the oldest kid in the class. And so I did faster and better than everyone else. And I think it was almost, a, most people there were just trying to take a lesson to take a lesson. I was there to take a lesson with a future in mind. And so mm. it changes the way you take that first lesson, right? There was a commitment already there. So I knew that I had to, give it my all right away. So I probably got better faster, but it was, it was every day. We, I, went, I remember one group lessons every single day of the week, 3.30 in the afternoon, and I was like a group of four. I totally, I remember it vividly. I had like the old school wooden racket um, and it was, it, it weighed a ton, man. Like it, for a 10 year old to carry, it was, like, it was like Thor's hammer. So you played tennis for a few years. What was the process like from uh, playing ten, I, I think you played uh, professional tennis. You got you got that far, right? In in uh, India, what was the process like to transition over to the U.S.? Yeah, so my thought that hey, if you, I didn't know any different. So I thought that hey, yeah. you just play uh, tennis, you do really well. If you're if you play a lot of tournaments and you're playing internationally, uh, then uh, universities in the U.K. In, in the U.S. in Canada and in Australia would be super interested in having you play on their teams. So. Um, I, I didn't turn pro, but I played pro tournaments because I was like, Hey, I got to show this on a resume that I'm good enough to do this. And once you start playing pro tournaments and you take money for playing, you you're, you're a professional. You're not an amateur anymore. I never realized that because once that happens, you lose what we call amateur status. And when you do that, all the universities basically will say, well, that's like going from the NFL back to college football, right? You can't do that. So all my scholarship letters were all rescinded. It looks like you turned pro. You may not be eligible for this, you know, this the playing amateur tennis. And it's not that I turned pro. It just it looked like I turned pro. And so now I had to try to talk to school and then it got too late. And so they withdrew all their papers. And so finally, uh, the only thing that I could do was get, so I couldn't play in division one program. So I couldn't play in the big school. So I, uh, there was one, uh, I had a friend who, who had a coach, who was a coach at a smaller school, a division three school, uh, where they don't offer athletic scholarships. So mm -hmm. you're, and, and so I was like, Hey, as long as I get to the States, that's cool. Or as long as I get a new life. So I went to play a small school in Iowa called Luther college, 
they were a really big powerhouse school uh, on tennis. So they offered academic scholarships to people on their academics, but didn't get any athletic scholarships. So I was like, I don't care what it is. Uh, you know, as long as I get a chance to play and, and uh, I still have a place to go, this is cool. That was the, that was the one I realized that I, you couldn't go from pro to amateur status, which no one really told you that that, yeah. which sounds <laughs> basic, but you, you have no mentoring around this stuff. Right. Your guys' plan kind of backfired on you, honestly. Totally. My father said he's like, um, our plan worked too well. He's like, we sacrificed so much and you got so good that our plan worked too well. And um, there was a time when my dad said, hey, do you just want to go try to play pro? And I was, that, that's a good uh, question because I never thought about that uh, mm-hmm. because that was never the goal. Right. And I told him, no, I don't want to. Like, that was not the goal. The goal was to use this as a platform to get a better life. The, the goal was not to go try and be Roger Federer. That was not the goal. Do you think you, if you continued with tennis, you would have been like a great pro tennis player? No, I was good. Uh, I was good enough to be kind of top 1,000 in the world, maybe. It, nobody cares if you're top 1,000 in the world. Like even, even the top 100, you and I couldn't name 10 out of the top 100 outside of the top 10. Uh, so there's, so you, could, you can't make a living doing that. But what I did realize was that I love the sport. So when I went back and I learned how to teach tennis, it was a great asset for me because I already had a base of being a decent tennis player. And so teaching came a little bit more naturally because it developed the other side of it for me. So I, I think I was more gifted on the, on the teaching, coaching, mentoring side. Got it. Uh, as opposed to like, I would, not have, I would not have been a, I would never have won Wimbledon or anything like that. I didn't have those kind of skills. Got it. All right. So now you moved to Iowa Luther College. Was the transition to the USA pretty smooth? Did you come to, the, to America with you know, a lot of money in your pockets? Or? Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so my, uh, my parents, um, my parents, didn't, I mean, they were, they were, they were, you know, middle-class citizens in India. They, they gave me a good life. So that's, I never want to take that away from them, but we didn't have enough to like write four years worth of like a hundred thousand dollar check or whatever. Like my parents didn't have that kind of money. Yeah. So what they did was they, um, they made a deal with me. They said, Hey, we'll pay for your full first year. Like your flights, your room, your board, like everything. Here's a check for one year. So then my parents actually sold almost all their belongings. And uh, like literally they changed their entire lives. They sold almost everything that they had, put it all into one check, gave it to me to come to the U.S. And my, and my dad, I remember my dad saying this. He said, hey, uh, if you got three more years and I know you have a year to figure it out, which is, which is a long enough time. And if you don't and it doesn't work out, come back, we'll take care of you, right? And we'll figure it out. So they still gave me a safety net, but they gave me, they gave me a year to figure it out, which I thought was amazing. So my parents put me on a plane, I get on a plane, I, fly to my, I land in Chicago, closest airport to Iowa, I land in Chicago. And this was before the age of cell phones and all of that. So I had arranged with the school that someone's gonna come pick me up. So I'm waiting, two hours go by, four hours go by, eight hours go by, and I'm like, where is this person? I don't even know who to call or anything like that. Right, right, it, get, right. it gets later at night. I literally make myself a little bed on the, on the, on like an airport bench. I'm sleeping there and this, um, and I, I sleep there the night to wake up in the morning. The, this, this public address system goes off. It says, Hey, Sharon Trivata, please pick up a white courtesy form. And I'll tell you, man, you never want your name called out loud. And <laughs> That's right. So I go, I pick up the phone and they get the gal says to me, Hey, the person was supposed to come pick you up. Uh, their car broke down, and they need you to take bus thirty-two or whatever 
to Moline, Illinois. And I'm like, where is Moline, Illinois? Like, I don't know any of this stuff. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, whatever, no problem. So I go down to the bus, little bus depot, and I get on this bus. And they said it's like a two and a half hour drive or whatever it was. Two hours go by, four hours go by, six hours go by. I'm like, where am I? Finally, it's later at night. The bus stops. I'm the only one in the bus. The driver comes up to me. He's like, hey, kid, I think you got on the wrong bus. I don't know, but this we're in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I'm like, where's La Crosse, Wisconsin? By the way, how was your English at that time? Was it, was it good? It was conversational. I could understand people just fine, but I had a really thick I mean, I could write and I could understand. I'm, I had a really thick Indian accent to speak. Got it. Because we never spoke English in, as fluently growing grown up. So I, was, I could get by. I knew what other people were telling me, but I, they didn't understand what I was telling them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I had one bag. I got out. I'm trying to get inside the bus depot. And out of nowhere, this, uh, this guy in a hoodie jumps, you know, just jumps out of nowhere, like pulls a knife out on me and says, hey, give me all your money. Like I get mugged my first day in the U.S. And it was a little scary because I'd heard yeah. stories about like gangs and mugging and stuff like yeah. that. I never, I never had anybody pull a knife or a gun on me. Like you're not trained for that kind of stuff. That's crazy. You thought it was only in the movies, right? Oh, dude, totally. <laughs> I, I never like I'm a even till today. Like I'm not a I'm not a gun weapons kind of guy. Like I only because I didn't grow up around it. I, like that right. stuff freaks me out. I'm cool like watching it in a movie, but. You know, James Bond and stuff is cool, but I don't, I, you give me a gun, I'd be like, well, I don't know what to do with it. I don't even know how to handle like a butter knife. Like I, I have, I have no, no skill when it comes to that. So I'm like, I, I was still dumbstruck. I'm like, who is this guy? And he wants my money. And what I'm thinking is, wouldn't like this guy is mugging the wrong person. Like I have nothing. I had like a hundred odd dollars in my pocket, like a hundred dollars and $120 or whatever. I can't remember. But I had a hundred dollar bill. I remember that. So this guy starts going through my stuff. And finally he tells me, he's like, where's all your stuff? And I'm like, I don't have any money. And he goes, well, you have to have some. And so I told him, I'm like, hey, listen, I just got here from India. I'm here for school. I don't even know where I'm going. I'm lost. And I pulled out the $100 and I said, I have $100 to get me to school and that'll give me food for the next few days. I said, clearly you're doing this. And by the way, this is none of this is scripted at all. Like this all came out randomly while I was talking to him. I said, you're probably doing, you probably don't want to mug me. You're doing this because you need the money in some way. Can I make you an offer? I'm going to give you this hundred dollars. <laughs> Can you give me 50 back? And he looks at me. He's like, uh, did you ask for like $50 back? You were negotiating with him. <laughs> I mean, I, but I didn't know any different. Like, and right, you right. can make the stuff up, but like literally I would not have had any money. And I could see in his eyes that clearly he was not going to hurt me. I could tell I was not a threat to him in any way. And I was not going to run or scream or what I was talking to him. And so I told him, I was like, hey, if I give you a hundred, can you just give me 50 back and let me get to school and you get 50 bucks? This is like the greatest thing ever. Literally, man, I'm not, I'm not, as I'm not joking. He took the hundred dollars and he dished me back 40, 20, 20 and a five. Like I got 45 oh bucks. Oh my God. Right. He opened his wallet, give me 40, 45, 20, 20 and a five back and puts his, puts his hoodie back on and walks away. I was like, this is so weird. So I only have 45 <laughs> bucks. And uh, I went in, I figured out the next bus to Moline, Illinois, and I, yeah. I, got, I got to school. But it was, it was pretty wild to, you know. And so now I had even lesser money, but and the last thing I wanted was my parents to figure out that I got slit in the throat in, in you know, somewhere in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Okay, so, so now you're back in, uh, you get to school. What happens next? So I'm in school and, um, uh, you know, most people don't know this mechanically, but when you're a freshman in school, there's orientation. And so people come to campus a couple of weeks early to learn about stuff on your, but when you come from another country, uh, they call it international, international student orientation, which means you got to come four weeks earlier because you got to do like a bunch of stuff. And so I'm on campus like four weeks before school starts. 
And the first thing I do is I got this check of, for one year's worth of tuition. And I'm like, okay, well, I should go like deposit this check. So I go to the financial services at school and I'm like, hi, here's my check. And the lady's like, this is cool. Awesome. Welcome to campus. Here's your key to your dorm room. Uh, oh, by the way, this check is an international text check. So it'll take 10 to 14 days to clear. I was like, okay. And she goes, after that's done, your, uh, your ID would activate for your ability to eat in the cafeteria. And I'm like, okay, cool. It didn't like register that my ID wouldn't activate now. Right. And I was like, okay, so I'm walking. I'm like, wait, I have a key to my dorm room, but I have no access to food because my ID didn't activate. I was like, all right. So whatever money I had left over, I, you know, kind of bought food for a couple of days. I went to every pizza party had on campus. I went to like every uh, Greek house rushing that they had on campus so I can get food. I, I don't drink. So like, you know, and I'm 17. So like, I can't even drink at that time. Uh, I went to every root beer float party. Like I just basically went to every party on early on campus. But then one day I was just, I hadn't eaten that day and I was walking back to my dorm room and I saw, it was later in the evening and I saw like two guys, you know, throwing a bunch of pizza boxes into the dumpster. And I go, okay. So I was hungry and I was like, eh, you know, wouldn't it be great to get a couple of slices of pizza? That would be awesome. And then my, my monkey brain is like, well, there may be some pizza slices in those boxes that these guys just threw in the dumpster. Yeah. And none of us, none of us are grown up, grow up by where someone tells us, Hey, you need to go dumpster dive to get food. But I was hungry. I hadn't eaten like in a day, day and a half. I can't remember exactly. And so I waited till it was nightfall. I uh, sat on this bench, waited till it was nightfall, put my hoodie on, jumped, like went to this dumpster, dumpster jumped in and I grabbed the, there were like two slices of pizza. I grabbed them and I just, I ran to my dorm room. I didn't even have like, I didn't even grab the pizza box. I just grabbed the two pizzas and I was like, literally had soggy pizza in my hand. I, I remember that. And I walking in, I didn't even have like a paper towel or anything. So I go, I sit in my dorm room and I eat the pizza better. And I'm like, okay, wow, that was a new low. I never thought that that would ever happen, but glad nobody saw it. Everything's cool. Well, I just happened the next day or day and a half later, I saw, I was walking by the dumpster and I saw these couple of guys throw a bunch of these uh, Subway sandwiches into the dumpster. I'm like, oh my gosh, come on, you can't do this to me. I hadn't eaten in a while, so I, I waited till nightfall. I jump into the dumpster. I knew exactly where the Subway sandwiches are. I grabbed the Subway sandwiches uh, and then I saw this Pop-Tart and I, I was from India. Like, I don't know what a Pop-Tart is. And I, it said toaster pastry. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. This will, you know, this will last me. So I grabbed this Pop-Tart. As soon as I grabbed this Pop-Tart, something just smacks me in the face. And I'm in like an eight by eight dumpster. So this is not even big. It smells terrible. It's hot. It's, you know, it's not big. And I'm, I've, I touch my skin and I'm, I'm bleeding. I'm like, I look in the corner and I see these two yellow beady eyes and I think it was a raccoon. I move around and I see this street light streaming into the dumpster. Now I can see this raccoon, which is not a, not a big guy, but you have a, a raccoon in an eight by eight dumpster. Like it's just you and the raccoon. So there's not a lot oh of space. Yeah. And so that's when, I, again, this is again, a fight or flight kind of kicks in at this point. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, I don't know. I have zero idea what to do. I'm not thinking straight. My job is to get out of this dumpster with the food in my hand. So I grab the subway sandwich, I grab the pop tart. I literally, and it's like, I, kick the raccoon <laughs> like a bruce lee karate kick i just kicked the ra- i just kick in the raccoon's direction i think i made contact and and i like literally jump out and i run i run as fast as i, ca- I could and i sat down like on on a park bench or a grass and a little while like i'm bleeding do i do i eat first or do i go get a tetanus shot first like i had no idea what to do 
So I ate first and then I went and got a tetanus shot. Uh, but that really, you know, begins to help you know the, like, life can get tough, but like this stuff you can't make up. It, the, after that, everything got better because my check cleared. But till then, uh, yeah, those were uh, definitely fought with a raccoon and a Pop-Tart. That is the craziest story. I can't imagine myself being in that position. So um, you're fighting off a raccoon, you go and get a tetanus shot. What, and then you, you, you study software engineering, correct? Yeah, yeah, I was a computer science math major. Well, what inspired you to become an engineer? When I was in, co- uh, in high school, they started offering these, um, you know, like in a computer science elective, like a programming elective. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. Like, you know, let me see if I can do that. It came supernaturally to me, and I, that was that became. So I did. I had I had started to write code in the last couple of years of high school. So I was far ahead in the college curriculum. I was already like you know writing software, which I thought was very cool in India. And so for some reason, I was like, hey, if this is working and I like it, I'm just going to yeah. kind of do more of this until I have something else that comes along. So that was the entire choice behind it. Okay, so then you graduated as a software engineer. You took on a few uh, software roles, right? Engineering roles. And then you made a shift into banking, correct? Yep. Why make that move? So me and my partners at that point, uh, the, the st- here's how the story goes. I was uh, describing, I was pitching my senior project at Berkeley in a, in a programming contest. Okay. And I was pitching this, what I had kind of come up with as a white paper. And at that point, one of the judges pulled me aside and said, hey, good idea. You're not going to win. Good idea. <laughs> but yeah. I funded uh, a few other guys in a startup last year. Uh, who your idea would work really well with, let me connect you. So they were, they were kind of pre-revenue. They were just getting their business going. So he connected me as, so he was the angel. He connected me. I joined that company uh, as a startup. We, you know, I was very early. I was not a founder. I was very early employee. So I had, had a boatload of options, which was, which was really great. And then we got acquired by a publicly traded company. So that was uh, cool to do that. And once we got acquired, I decided that, hey, I, I literally got a windfall of cash that I would not have gotten otherwise, which is way cool. Um, paid off everything that I owed, student loans, everything else that I, anybody and anybody that I owed money, I paid everything off. And I decided, okay, well, what am I going to do with my life now? And I took, I decided to take five years off uh, because I knew that that's, uh, I had enough money for what I had earmarked, enough money, even if I made no money doing anything else, I had enough money that would last me five years. Yep. So I said, okay, I have five years of money. What do I do? And I mean, I'm, I'm 21. So I was single. I didn't single, have a, okay. I, like, I didn't even own a car at that point. I was living in the Bay Area. I didn't. And so it was a very simple life. And so I taught tennis for five years. Um, I was in the Caribbean and Dubai and on Maui for five years. So wow. it was a good, it was a good life, but yeah. you learned pretty quickly that, you know, it's, it's learn, living in hospitality in the hospitality world is, is a very interesting experience. If I had my kids go through any kind of training, it would be, to go through like a Four Seasons or Ritz Carlton training because they really teach you empathy with the, with the customer. It was the best training I've ever been to. The, go, the Four Seasons training was better than Goldman Sachs training. Really? Oh, it was the best training I've ever, ever been to because they literally teach you human psychology, right? So if you go to a Four Seasons, you pay $1,000 a night, you're there for five nights and then you leave, you don't get to take home Maui with you, right? Like, mm-hmm. but if you, go to a, if you go to a Rolex store and you buy a watch, at least you take home a watch. Right. So you have something right. to, so you're only taking home a experience. And so for them, you, you, every interaction layers the experience and even one interaction completely negates the experience. So they could have a hundred data points of a great experience over five days, but it rained on one day, 
So now it's your fault, right? And so to Amazing. solve that is really powerful. And they, have, they, they train you how to do that. So I, I taught tennis for five years in different resorts, which is very cool. And then my original mentor, who was an angel in my first company, who got me that introduction, called yeah. me and he's like, hey, Sharon, I have this idea. Uh, are you done with your five years? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, you should go to Wall Street. That way you learn how to structure deals, structure businesses, structure all of that. So that the next time you start a business, you can be savvier. To go to Wall Street, you just can't walk into Wall Street and say, I want a right. job. So the pathway is to go to business school. So I went to business school at Vanderbilt um, and with a very specific, they, they, are, they have a huge, amazing finance program. They put a lot of people into Wall Street. So it was like a very specific thing saying, I'm going to go here to get there. Um, I, um, across all investment banks in, uh, in just in the fall of my first year in business school, I did over a hundred interviews. A hundred? A hundred interviews. Wow. Which is hundred one-on-one scheduled interviews. And, and which, is, which is crazy. I don't think most people have done a hundred interviews in their, in their lives. No, I, <laughs> yeah, I did 39 one-on-one interviews just with Goldman Sachs. That is crazy. 39. I remember, I remember interviewing for a company around like the fifth round and I was already like exhausted. I'm like, man, are these guys going to choose me or not? You got, you did 39? 39 one-on-one scheduled. This doesn't include coffees, uh, phone interviews, dinners, and this was across the country. So I was in, in New York, in Atlanta, in Chicago, in San Francisco. Like literally it was like, Hey, we're going to do a full day with you tomorrow in San Francisco, get on a plane. Here's a ticket. I'm like, so I would just get on a plane and no prep, nothing. You need to know everything. It was, it was, it was pretty intense, man. I'm curious from like a selling perspective, how did you manage to persuade uh, 39 people to to give you that job? The advice that a lot of people gave me was like, Hey, you want to be, um, when they leave the interview with you, they should feel an emotion. They should feel something. And if all of them felt the same thing, because they're all going to talk. Uh-huh. So, you know, with Ennis, you shouldn't be one way. With John, you shouldn't be the other way. You should be the same way. And, the, and what should come out is something, what do you want it to come out? So to me, I would basically, I told the story, right? Like, hey, I'm, I'm resilient. I can fight. I can learn. I'm resilient. I can fight. I can learn. Like, and I show up like this every single day. So the, I remember this guy once told me, a managing partner of an office, he told me, he's like, um, would you make cold calls? I was like, what do you mean? He literally pulled the yellow pages. This was like yellow pages time. He puts in a conference room, he puts it in front of me. He flips a page, he pushes the phone and he says, um, find a business, found a business. He goes, call him. And, and so I picked up the phone and I go, okay, um, can you give me? And so I said to him, I was like, can you give me a script? Yeah. And that sounds interesting, but he looks at me, he closed the phone book, he shakes my hand, he says, you'll do great. And I go, I didn't get it. So I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you have to like explain what you just mean. So he said, most hot shots walk in here. They think they're so cool. They'll pick up the phone, they'll pick a business and they'll call the business and they'll say, hey, my name is Sharon. I'm calling from Goldman Sachs. And then they don't know what to say after because they don't know what to pitch. What you said was, Hey, I'll call anybody. I'll do anything. Just give me the script. And you have to have a script. Like you got to train me in some way. So he says, Hey, I can teach you anything. I can teach you the script. I can literally give it to you. You can read, but I just wanted to see that you were open to doing that. So now like that is the easiest thing because now, and it was the truth. I just say, Hey, I don't know what to say. Just tell me what to say. I'll say it to anybody you want. Right. And so people think it's beneath them to ask for the, 
script? And I don't think so. I, it, I think it's the company's responsibility to give you the tools to succeed. Man, okay, so you, you always had that willingness to learn which he saw in you. That gave you the edge over the people that thought they were hot shots and can do it all without a script. Huh, interesting. Okay, so you worked for a few years at uh, Goldman Sachs, um, and then you made the switch to Telly's properties, is that correct? Yeah, so, so what happened was, um, so I was, at, I was at Goldman for three years, and then our team got acquired by Credit Suisse. So then okay. I went to Credit Suisse for, um, for two, so I was five years in banking. And then my, part, my uh, mentor at that time had invested in a real estate business in Beverly Hills, California. It was a small real estate company called Telus Properties. And it had, uh, at that time, like 25, 30 real estate agents. They were selling real estate, uh, high-end real estate in the California market. And so what my, my, my mentor told me at that point, he, he said, hey, um, these guys are really sharp. Uh, it would be great if next time they're in California, you can give them some kind of consulting just because you've seen a lot of businesses at Goldman. I said, sure, of course. So I went out and I visited with them and I thought they had an amazing business model. But at that time, the, those original partners at that company were not getting along. They just, they just had different goals for the business, right? Yeah. And they're all really great, smart people. And so I told my, my mentor that because he was an investor. I said, hey, listen, I think this is a great business. I don't think the original founders are getting along. And he said, what do you think should happen? I said, I think they should do these 10 things. And so I just gave him a list of 10 things. Uh, he, as the chairman of the board, told him, hey, why didn't you consider doing these 10 things? And they did three out of the 10 and instantly they started making a ton of cash. So they call, he called me back and he's like, hey, uh, what would it take for you to come and work with us? And I said, I have zero interest in doing that. I'm happy doing banking in New York, but I do it if I could get controlling ownership of the business because right, then, right. then I, I have enough of a stake. I don't want to go from a job to like, and he says, okay. So um, he said, the only way to do that is for us to buy partners out and they're willing to be bought out because they're not getting along. At that point, I didn't have, I'd run through my five years of cash. I didn't, I was not sitting on millions of dollars, so I didn't have a nest egg. And I was, I'd just gotten married and I, my first child was on the way. I was like, okay, now I'm in a risky situation where I'm gonna risk my existing nest egg. And I didn't have that much to actually buy into this business. And after thinking about it, I actually made it, my, my wife was a consultant at that time with Deloitte. I met my wife at business school, very, very sharp. I actually made a little PowerPoint presentation for her explaining the opportunity. Internally, really? I, had, I sold her on this opportunity. Okay. And I said, this is going to be a rough five years, but if we make it, this is going to be great for our family. And I said, I'm probably not going to get paid for a few years and we probably have to like liquidate all our life savings. Um, I reverse mortgaged my house at that time yeah. and to make, take all the money out, uh, borrowed from my family and my parents. And uh, me and my mentor at that time bought a controlling interest in the business so we could take it over. So we did that and once we did that, I quit my job in banking and I decided to say, hey, we have 34 agents in one office in Beverly Hills. How do I build a plan to scale it? So we put a plan together to scale it. At that point in time, they were roughly doing 300 million-ish in gross top line business. So in, we put a plan together to take it from 300 million-ish top line uh, to grow at 10x in five years. That was, my, that was my plan. And we put the plan together, hired the team. So we went from one office, 34 agents, 300 million to 22 offices, 650-ish, 700 people, 3.4 billion in five years. And so we grew at 10x in five years. And uh, then we were acquired by a publicly traded company called Douglas Element out in New York. Wow. Okay, real quick, what role did that mentor or any other mentors in your career play in, um, in your success or influence your success? 
Yeah, so I'd say looking back, if I could do anything differently, it would just be to get paid mentors early on because I really, um, like people reach out to me all the time and they'll say, hey, can I pick your brain? I'm like, absolutely not. Like, yeah. absolutely not. You, 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 don't, you won't appreciate it uh, because there's nothing behind it and there's no accountability around it and there's no seriousness for me to deliver this to you either because I have no idea. But if someone writes a check like me and someone writes to me or with me or I write a check, you show what we call a symbol of seriousness. And so I wish earlier in my career I had written, I had just hired coaches and mentors uh, to do very specific things. I call them sniper mentors. So I remember at TELUS, I hired a coach with very specifically to help me grow the business 10x. Not the company, me. Like the company didn't pay for her. I paid for her. Right. And I'll tell you, she was $40,000 a quarter. So it's wow. not cheap, right? Yeah. And so, so uh, but she was worth her weight in gold and she delivered. Like she basically said, hey, the day you hit 10X in five years and the company gets acquired, the day the company closes, your, your relationship with me is done. I'm like, awesome, that's the goal. So she, like she stayed with me all the way and it was very expensive, but like if you write that kind of check, you show up, you do the work, you take the time. It's not like a 15 minute coaching call or an hour coaching call. And then you're like, Oh, whatever. Like you do the work because, or right. you challenge the work. And, and so I think it's super important for that. And I wish, you know, a lot of people be like, Oh, can I run this expense through my business? And like, can I make the sure all that's cool. But this was a personal investment in trying to get me to try to make all this work. And it paid off like 400, 500, 600 X, right? Like it was not even, not even close on the ROI. Um, my, my mentor then became, he and I have been partners since our first acquisition. So he and I have been partners for 20 plus years now. And so he, in all the businesses, so we run a fund together. So in all the businesses that we run, including TELUS, he served as the kind of the chairman of the board. He's a little, uh, he's already kind of been there, done that, had all the success. Uh, so he's uh, like a father to me. And so he has, he, wor he works a chairman role in most of our, in every business that I have. And I, I work the CEO operator role and I, cause I enjoy that. And yep. I always, so um, it's a good kind of yin yang when it comes to, comes to playing that component. But yeah, without, without him and without like a paid coach mentor, uh, you know, value proposition, I would have never, like you, when you're inside the bottle, it's really hard to read the label, right? Like you just don't know yep. what you don't know. Yep. You just don't know what you don't see. And 100%. for someone looking outside, they can be like, why are you doing that? And I'd be like, oh, I never thought about that. And yep. you know the answers, but you can't see it in yourself. And I think having that uh, awareness, uh, only, only a third party can give it to you. Totally, yeah. Okay, so I know we're short on time, so I, I want to shift gears just a little bit. We have a segment here. It's called the Made for More Mindset segment, right? Where it gives us insight into the, your mindset and success, successful habits that Sharon does to make what Sharon is, right? Um, so the first question is, are you an early bird or a night owl? Um, I am uh, naturally a night owl. However, I'm an early bird now because I decided that um, I'm going to be that way. So it was a choice. Okay. And so I run something called a 5 a.m. club. It's a five-minute phone call at 5 a.m. Pacific time, 365 days a year. So I've done close to, I've done this for four, close to four years now. So it's every single day of the week at, for five minutes at 5 a.m. Pacific time. It's 100% free. We have 6,000 plus people on the call today. Why did you start that? I started it only because it was an accountability thing for me to wake up in the morning. And I realized that the alarm, I would hit snooze. And but if I knew that there were other people on the line that were going to show up and I had to be coherent enough to deliver a cool message, 
that I needed to be awake. And once you're awake and you deliver a message, you're not going back to sleep. So um, at 5.05, I'm like ready to go because I've just like given a mini presentation for four or five minutes. So it's, and it also, it allows you to start your day with giving in some way. And uh, yeah. I, I've had more people tell me that, you know, it saved their lives, it's changed their finances, it's changed, helped their marriages. It helped, it's, you know, one guy lost 172 pounds by using the call as an anchor because he used the call as a way for him to wake up every morning as accountability. So yeah, it's 5amclub.net if people want to check it out. Totally free. Totally. All right. I'm going to check it out myself. Um, how often do you journal? Um, I journal every single day. Um, I don't, I start my day with a journal. So I actually come to the office, uh, or whenever, wherever I'm working that day. And I just, uh, I completely brain dump everything that's on my mind and I journal, I, I use the journaling idea to plan my day and plan what's what I do. I sometimes at night, if I have a lot going on in my head, I use the journal most, more, most, more as a vehicle to get thoughts out of my head. Mm. Uh, cause, cause it's easy for fear, uh, if you will, or stress to swirl in your head. And I, I like to say this because fear has no place on paper. So if you get it out of your head, you at least can say, oh, that's a fact. I'm scared about money or like, what well, I don't want to do with this presentation or whatever. So that's important. But so I'd say I journal every day, but it's more as a brain dump type exercise. And um, that's helped me a lot. It's like a, it's a part of just a planning routine for me. How do you know you're being productive and not just spinning your wheels? Yeah, t totally. I think, that, I think that comes down to the planning. I don't do anything that I don't have planned to do. When I plan my day, I've just realized that I do, I have an hour block set aside to chat with you. Great, an hour block set aside to chat with you. My next hour block, I just don't say, great, I'll check my email now. I don't do that. I, I literally, when I set up my day, my entire day is planned. So I know exactly, I'm like, hey, after I talk to Ennis, I'm going to check my email for 30 minutes. Like, it's very simple. And so that way I take away the, the decision-making kind of like, oh, what do I do now? Or what's next? Or what's hot? Or, uh, you know, do I get distracted on YouTube? I don't do any of that. To me, it's very like, here's my day. It's planned. And when it's not planned and there's an empty block, I literally get up and leave. I get out of my chair because if I don't do that, then you start to get distracted. So, yeah, I, is, it, is it like that 100% of the time every single day? No. But almost all my days, I, like, I always tell I, the CEOs that I mentor, uh, you can't begin your day unless you plan your day. So I don't even start it until I have the day planned and then is when I start my day. How do you deal with toxic people in your life? The, the, you try as, as fast as possible to kind of get out of the way. Okay. Um, that if you can't, sometimes you can't. And if you can't, you just start to limit your interaction significantly. And if you can't do that, you literally put your, you literally kind of put a wall of kindness around you and be like, okay, I appreciate what she's going to say, but I'm not going to take anything. I've made a decision that I'm just going to be kind and let her do what she's doing and not let her bother me. Uh, but uh, it's, 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 a, it's a decision. It's a choice. Uh, what doesn't help any of us is you get in the toxic stuff every day. You know it's toxic, but you allow it to continue to be toxic and affect you. And that's no fun at all. Right. So, um, I, you've got to either one, get out of it, you know, to distance yourself from it or three, just make a choice that you're not going to let it bother you. And at some point getting out of it is the fastest way. Uh, my final question is when it's all said and done, what impact does Sharon want to leave on our world? Yeah. So I've thought about this a lot and I, I had, I had a lot of uh, big kind of grandiose ideas when I was 23 years old, right? Yeah. Uh, about what you want to do. I want to be a billionaire. I want to go to space. I want to be Elon Musk, whatever, like all that. All that's changed for me. Uh, I've realized that I don't have uh, the tools to make that big an impact or, or that I want to have because I don't know what exactly it is. But what I want to do is I want to create an environment 
for my two children to kind of be the torchbearers of that. So I'm pouring all my ideas and saying, hey, the reason I'm working, the reason I'm creating an environment is to help those two. It, it's kind of, I want to hand the tor- torch over to them to say, hey, how can I help you go change the world? And like, that's become my mission now. It seems a little weird, but like I spend my entire today is now thinking, all right, does this help my children do better? Because now they're going to have a much longer runway. My, my children are four and eight. And I think if, if I can get them a better financial position, if I can get them better education, if I can get them better mindset, if I can get them all that better early on, when they're 18, 20, 24, they will be 20, 30 years ahead of me. And with the technological advancement of society, et cetera, they may have a better chance at making a bigger mark in the world. So my, my goal right now is to doing whatever it takes to give them, position them so they can they can step up and uh, uh, be the torchbearers. Well, there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. For more inspiration, go follow Sharon at Sharon Trivatsa. And until the next time, dream big because you, my friend, are made for more.